I think that's what yoga helped me see is this like if you take all this energy and instead of directing it towards things that are taking you away from what you really want to do, just flip it over and like use that energy towards something that actually might do some good. That was Bibi Lorenzetti and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Hello, Dharma Talkers. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I just want you to know that I appreciate you investing your time into these conversations. I see the listenership growing and it lights me up to know that we have a global community that is interested in learning from one another and taking their yoga practice another layer deeper through conscious discourse and exposure to new perspectives. We're here to live our purpose, to connect to our dharma, and it's my sincere hope that the podcast helps you on your path. This week, it's my privilege to share my very vulnerable conversation with dedicated Ashtangi, Bibi Lorenzetti. But first, this is the second episode since I switched over to a new and fresh sound for Dharma Talk which is all thanks to the audio engineering magic of my new podcast producer, Rory, and the vibrational tunes of Momentology. If you like what you hear, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already, and leave me a rating and review. Go ahead, pause the episode right now and leave the review. You can hop right back in and I'll wait for you. A few other ways that you can support Dharma Talk are one, to share the episode with a friend that you think will benefit from the message. And then if you find the podcast valuable, make a donation. This week, I am indebted to Gracie Ralph and Gabriel Tavera for making donations. Gabriel, you can listen to on episode 40. He's a past guest of the podcast, and he also happens to be my gracious host in Texas next month for the Lighthouse Immersion at Yoga East Austin. So if you'd like to make a donation like Gracie or Gabriel, you can always do that at henrywins.com slash donate. Thank you both, and thank you everyone for listening. Now, before we dive into the episode, I've got a couple of announcements. As I mentioned, I'll be heading to Texas to teach at the end of this month and into the beginning of October. From September 27th to 29th, I will be at Horizon Hot Yoga in Dallas. I'm teaching Hatha Vinyasa classes and a couple workshops, gratitude practice and arm balancing and floating. And then October 3rd through 6th, I'm headed back to my old stomping grounds, Yoga East Austin with Jared McCann, and we're leading a four-day immersion there. Every morning starts with a group sadhana where we do our spiritual practice outside of the asanas. And then we have a JM vinyasa class, the signature style of Lighthouse in Brooklyn we're bringing to Texas. The afternoons, we do workshops, posture clinics, and satsang discussions. For the details on the Texas workshops and everything else I've got coming up, please head over to henrywins.com events, and you can sign up there. Are you feeling stuck or stagnant? Are you looking for a catalytic experience to ignite radical transformation? 
Join me and my wife, Veronica Lombo, for an unforgettable retreat designed to ground your body, purify your mind, and expand your connection to consciousness through yoga, sacred silence, and natural immersion. Our week together in Bali will offer you the perfect environment to refocus on what is calling you, your purpose, your perfect path, your dharma, so that you can move forward with renewed vigor into growth and service to others. The days will be structured around guided group meditations, vinyasa and hatha yoga classes, delicious and clean plant-based meals, of course, and opportunities for free exploration of nature, both outside and within. Come honor your past experience and effort, celebrate where you are now, and lay a pure foundation for the year to come. Clear the space for reconnection to source with us in Bali, December 5th through 11th, 2019. Get the details and make a deposit at henrywins.com slash Bali. Now allow me to introduce my guest, Bibi Lorenzetti, at bb.lorenzetti on Instagram, is an Ashtanga yoga teacher originally from Italy and currently based in New York. She's been sharing the practice of yoga for the past 10 years with people all over the world. She provides a space for people to research, explore, and learn about themselves, both at her home studio in Hudson Valley and on her retreats. Bibi wishes to share her journey of healing anorexia through Ashtanga Yoga in the hopes to inspire others to come into a state of health by building stability, discipline, and awareness through practice. Okay, Dharma Talkers, this conversation really goes there. Bibi shares from a place of vulnerability about her struggle with anorexia and how Ashtanga Yoga helped her process and heal from deeply ingrained resentment of her own body. She talks about structure, routine, and devotion, and the role that they played in finding the stability to heal from addictive and self-destructive habits. From the standpoint of a teacher, she talks about how to adjust and adapt your teaching to your student while still honoring tradition and the intention of a lineage. And she leaves us with a reflection on why she moved to the Hudson Valley after years of hyper-productivity in New York City and how immersion in nature has changed the energy of her daily life. Now, if this episode resonates with you, if you want to go deeper with BB, then head over to dharmatalk.show and type BB, B-I-B-I, in the search bar, and you'll find all the notes and links for this episode, including BB's recommended book and upcoming events. And for the record, I've got a running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk by all of the guests. So if you're looking for your next read, head over to henrywins.com slash books and just pick one out. And now without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Bibi Lorenzetti. Bibi, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. How are you? Hi, Henry. I'm great. I'm so excited to be on this been great to connect with you. 
Yeah. You know, we were just talking before the um, recording turned on and this is becoming more of a common thing for me and Dharma Talk to have these conversations for the first time with with my guests. So we've never met in person, but <laughs> you come with a, uh, a shining reputation and referral from my friend Eddie Stern, who you're very close with, spent a lot yeah. of time with and who is a past guest on Dharma Talk. So uh, I'm super excited to have you on and it's my pleasure to, to interview you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like listening to some of your podcasts, I feel like I have an idea of you, which is really <laughs> yeah. nice. I feel like I have a virtual friend. <laughs> well, let's let's dive right into it yeah. and we'll get to know each other even more. The first question I always ask all of my guests is, what does the word dharma mean to you? And what is your dharma as you understand it today? All right. So, uh the word dharma, I think, is such a has such a big, um, not a heaviness to it, but like a, it's a big deal to me. Um, and I feel like as a student of the Bhagavad Gita, I keep at the forefront of my mind what um, how Krishna kind of uh, speaks of it and relates to it. And he says that there's two dharmas, and the first one being um, that of taking care of le- or learning how to take care of our bodies and how to feel comfortable in them. And I think in my own personal journey, that's like a big uh, post-it that I have to keep right in front of me all the time. Um, and, and then he kind of says that once that's established and that relationship to to the like physical self is established, then we can move on into the second dharma, which is that um, the duty that we serve in the world. And so whatever that may be, whether, you know, we're a student or whether we are a family person or whether we're retired and beginning to kind of move away from our um, duties in life or whether we're like at the end of life, there's, there's always a duty that comes with every phase of life. But if we're not physically healthy or our vessels are not like, um, clear or clean and and sturdy enough for it, then we're not able to do our duty. So the whole idea of, I love this concept of like Dharma, the first and most important Dharma we establish is that to take care of ourselves and learn to treat ourselves in a certain way. Um, So that's kind of what I think of the the two things that pop into my mind when I think about the word Dharma. Um, And, and then in terms of um, my Dharma, I think that you know, having learned to build a, um, a soft, accepting and compassionate relationship to my own self um, has been a big part of my dharma for the first chunk of my life. Um, and I think once I encountered uh, yoga in my early 20s, um, that kind of eventually slowly moved into this wanting um, and yearning for teaching it and sharing what I've learned over the years and what I continue to learn every day um, with others. And so I feel like at this point in my life, um, my duty, I like to say duty more than dharma because I I don't feel so comfortable saying dharma a lot. Um, But my duty is that to to show up. Um, And as an Ashtanga teacher, showing up, you know, means that I mean, I guess any yoga teacher, but there's a certain devotion that comes to that and a certain honesty towards, you know, how you practice and uh, the way that you show up on your mat and the way that you show up practice in the sense of not just yoga asanas, but um, just your lifestyle and the way that you treat others and you treat the environment and 
um, you know, you show up for your students in a way that is, is receptive and is like, you're, you're taking yourself out of the way so that you can be there for others. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm at in terms of like what my, what I feel my duty or my Dharma is at this moment in life. Mm -hmm. And as you said before, you know, we move, we all move through phases. So it doesn't mean that that has been always what your duty was. It took a lot of work to get where you are now. And that yeah. first part that you spoke on, that, that Krishna spoke on, taking care of the yeah. body and feeling comfortable in it. It may sound simple, but this is something that it's very um, common to get hung up with over a long period of time. It can become a very significant struggle. So I would love for you to share a little bit about your, um, your work, finding comfort and compassion for your body. Yeah, I think for sure for, you know, for a long time, I, when I came to yoga, I didn't really, I didn't really come to it as a means of like, coming into communion with myself. I didn't really know what yoga was. It was just, I lived in St. Mark's and I happened to be right next door to yoga to the people. This was back in 2007. And I just, it was free. So it was, I could do it. And I went in and it was like, the, I remember the first class, it was just the sense by the end of it, it was the sense of like, I felt like I was home within myself. And it's a feeling that I think the last memory that I have of that is when I was maybe like five. Um, that I, and, and so it was this really deep sense of like inner, inner, like, yeah, I think communion is the best way to describe it. And, and it, I got really addicted to it because I have an addictive personality. And so it was just this kind of like, oh my God, I want to be here all the time. Um, and I think that's what, eventually that that wanting that repeating that wanting to like come back and 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 eventually that turning into like the responsibility of being um you know being at a physical state where I could come back um became very important and I think that over time so I had an eating disorder at the time. I was at the very peak of my anorexia and there, it was very hard for me to feel that sense of, of home, that sense of unity, that sense of like communion within myself. And, um, I felt, I felt very unsafe outside of that yoga space to be within myself. Um, and so the beauty of being able to come back every day and repeat the same movements and, you know, have a familiar setting was just really calming for, for my person, for my nervous system and for myself, inner self, I guess. Um, and so that's what kind of kept me coming back. And over time, the more I repeated these movements and the more I showed up, um, whether it was for, you know, the, the addiction to the movement and the sweat or whether it was for the teacher that I really liked or whether it was just because I wanted to feel that sense of communion, um, whatever it was that brought me there, um, eventually, begin to allow me to move into that first dharma that Krishna talks about of like beginning to understand what it feels like to feel comfortably in your body and to take care of your body and to even like understand I mean I was in such a place that like I was so disconnected from my physical body um, that the only relationship I knew to it was that of shame and judgment and like um embarrassment I just wanted it to be gone and so to have the permission in this space to love it and to feel it, its strength and to feel its stability was just amazing. 
Um, okay. And so I think that's, I don't know if I, I answer your question, but I think that's where, where I began to feel that aspect of like our do our first duty is to learn how to take care of our bodies and to feel comfortable in them. Well, first of all, I have to say, I can't ignore that the first yoga studio that you went to was Yoga to the People on St. Mark Street, because <laughs> that was also the first yoga studio that I ever went to. And there have been oh a God. handful of <laughs> guests on this show who have said the same thing. So that wow. place is just amazing for opening yeah, the gateway I mean, to so many it people. Was very special. Yeah, it was a very special place in its first years. But, um, sure. but I also want to talk about, uh, you know, you described your experience finishing that first class there as coming home within yourself. Now, mm -hmm. as someone who was in the depths of anorexia, this must have been a very unusual, unfamiliar feeling. How long mm -hmm. at that point had you already been struggling with anorexia? And if you feel comfortable sharing or um, have the ability to share, mm -hmm. how did how did that begin? How did the anorexia begin? So I was, so at the time that I joined 2008, I was probably 21, 22. Um, and I became, well, became is like, I, I, anorexia flourished in its full form for me when I was 17. Um, I don't really to the day know, I can't really pinpoint like a moment where something just switched. I just remember that as a young child that we moved a lot. And when I was 16, we moved from uh, Houston, Texas. I'm originally from Italy. Uh, we had moved to Houston uh, for four years. And when I arrived, I didn't speak a word of English. And it took me a really long time to like, become established and there was a period of time when we first moved I was 11 um where I that was the first time I ever felt ashamed of my body and that was because I was very small and I had a lot of hair all over my body and I didn't have any I, I wasn't, I didn't have any feminine curves and the, the other girls at that point in time, they were already like developed and they had boyfriends and they all had friends. So that's the first time that I remember feeling a sense of shame and, um, yeah, I think shame is, is a big word in an important word in, for an anorexic person. Um, there's a lot of that in the journey and, um, I worked really hard to kind of figure out how to fit in. And then the same thing happened at 16 or 15 when I moved from Houston to Spain. Um, again, I was in a country that I didn't speak the language and I was at a pretty crucial age where, you know, like your friends are really important and there's a lot of, a lot of your identity comes from who you're hanging out with and the things that you're doing. It's kind of what defines you, or at least that was my experience. Um, and so here again, I was like, sh you know, my identity was like shattered. It was like, oh my God, who am I if my friends are not here? And it really felt like my body was the one thing that had been there throughout all these experiences. And I wasn't happy. And so I, I, I think I just began to like, I also developed around that time. So my body drastically changed. And again, I felt that feeling of deep shame. I just wanted to like hide. And, um, and I think that's when it began to really take its full form where it was like the only way that I, the only thing that I could control in the midst of all these changes was, was my weight and was my body. And so that's kind of where it, where all the anxiety and all, all, all the things went, all the emotions went. And I began to really um, be 
disciplined in, in like in, with a negative connotation, like super um, rigid and and disciplined with how I, I what I how I nourish my or how I not nourish my body, um, and it just became very addictive. And I noticed how like it's really it's a switch in your mind, like something in your mind just switches and you, you go from a state of like feeling comfortable in your skin and unaware almost of your body and to a state of like where you're feeling like everything is coming against you or at you in a way that is, you have to protect yourself. So you're almost like in this, um, like, uh, what's the word? Um, sympathetic draw, like constant, like fight or flight um, place. And, and so your body just shrinks and you like hide inside and there's a sense of like separated, like, I don't know how to describe it, but you, you live very separate from, you you feel very separate from everyone. And you feel like you have to, the only thing that you can do in this sense of separation is to control your body. Um, so that's kind of how it developed. Yeah, I don't that, know if that, that answers your question. Well, it makes sense. And it sounds really similar to other forms of, of self-harm, you know, like, like cutting mm-hmm. or where everything else feels so out of place and uncontrollable that you latch on to one thing that you know that you can control to find that form of release. And, yes. you know, one thing that I couldn't help but think when you were describing the way that you see your body as being separate and something that you have shame or resentment over. It's almost like, you know, you're going from place to place and everything changes, but you have this one partner that sticks with you. And because that partner is the one thing that's there through all the changes and all the struggle, like that's the natural outlet for you to take your frustration out on, even though it's actually there supporting you. Yeah, that's totally, that's, that's put beautifully. (laughs) I love that. Um, yeah, it totally is. It becomes like, instead of making it, you know, there's, I feel like the way you describe it just made me see it as like, there's, there's a place in your path where you can choose to become, you know, make your body your best friend because it's the only thing that's always there or take all of your emotions out on it and make it your worst enemy. So it's kind of like the road splits and like, which way are you going to go? So unfortunately, or fortunately, because I learned a lot of things, you know, I I went that, that other way where, where I took it all out on on my body. And, you know, I think that, that it, it was definitely a blessing in disguise because I think that in, um, in that, ignorance of like not seeing that it wasn't about my body like it never was about my body I I discovered like so many strengths about myself like looking back like discipline and like the ability to really get what like if I wanted something I would get it even though it was negative you know but later on when I realized that all these things that I was doing all this energy that I was directing towards negative things if I could just flip it over and direct it towards negative things then then I could do anything I wanted um I mean not that I'm famous or have done anything great in life but just the idea of like I think that's what yoga helped me see is this like if you take all this energy and instead of directing it towards things that are taking you away from what you really want to do just flip it over and like use that energy towards something that actually might do some good and I think the first way that I actually started to to see that was I had to I think teaching was a big part of that like seeing how I could direct all my brain energy 
that was being directed towards how can I starve myself? How can I punish myself? How can I hide myself? How can I continue to like dissociate and separate myself from, from others uh, and from my own self, like was giving all that energy to, to my students and like to, to learning so that I could be better and I could show up better for students. So it was at the beginning teaching and still to the day, it was a really healing practice for me because it was finally I had some something outside of myself to show up for Mm -hmm. and I think that's what allowed me to see like the importance of what Krishna says of like our first duty is to really take care of our vessel because otherwise we we can't show up for life if we're not healthy you know yeah yeah and you said that the first outlet or the first channel where you redirected this discipline and focus was your teaching. But I would imagine that even before you started teaching with your practice, this was like a healthier alternative to direct that energy. And that's probably why you started to feel that sense of home within your body after even the first class. Yes, for sure. And I have to say like in, um, so I, I practice Ashtanga yoga now and I've, I've, I kind of moved into Ashtanga yoga probably eight years ago. Um, Eight or yeah, eight or nine years ago, and I think that it wasn't until I made, you know, there were glimpses of, of um, that feeling of communion, and there were glimpses of that feeling of like um, stability and and glimpses of like what was what I was like when I would look at myself in the mirror, like what was real about what I would see and what was not real. Um, but it wasn't really until I made the shift into practicing Ashtanga that, that the big changes began to really happen. And I think that's because the Ashtanga is really about like, you have to, like, it's quiet. You're doing the same thing every day. So it's, you have these opportunity every day to really listen to the content of your brain and an anorexic brain is not a pleasant place to live or like listen to. So Should have read everywhere. <laughs> yeah, really bad ones. <laughs> so it was just like the con. It was it was really good that I started when I started. I was at the shala with Kristen and Barbara, uh, Kristen Lay and Barbara Veroki, and um, it was really nice that. I think it was just perfect that I began there because it was such a. I don't know if you've ever been to the shala, the old shala. It was like this beautiful, soft place there were like pink see-through curtains and like old soft wood and it was just like quiet and old New York and it was just like you've walked in there and you were like okay I'm here to just like release like let like I'm 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 bowing down I'm like I'm, I'm gonna be humbled by this um so that I think helped me wanting to show up every day and listen to all the gunk that was in my brain um but to go back to the Ashtanga piece, I think that, yeah, the repetition and the silence and the, you know, the, the needed concentration of like where you're looking and, you know, relying on yourself to, to remember and to, you know, there was a, at the beginning when I started to learn, I really was eager to like get more postures. Mm-hmm. And so it was like that eagerness of like, I want to, I really want to figure this out. And I think that in that want, like that fire of wanting to figure it out, um, you know, it became very visible that I had to do things off the mat in order to be able to progress because my body would feel tired, you know, like I just started you know, the, the things that I was doing in all the hours where I was not in the shala became very loud. And 
I think even though it took another, you know, five years to actually have the courage and the, you know, physical stability um, to face them, they, they were just in my face. Um, so I, I think I'm very grateful to, to the structure of Ashtanga Yoga for, for, for giving that opportunity for, for growth. Yeah. When, when you first started practicing Ashtanga, were you, mm-hmm. you were not already a yoga teacher, correct? Uh, I actually, I was, yeah. Oh, you were? I started, okay. yeah, I started teaching pretty early. I started teaching in 2009 and then I showed up at the Shala and I was like, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'd like to teach. And I don't know if you know anything about the Shala, but they had the time, they only had like five teachers and were all like, had been practicing for like over 10 years. And so Barbara looked at uh-huh. me and was like, well. And it was all teaching. straight Ashtanga, right? All Kapitabi Joyce Institute. No, they had um, they had the Mysore program, and then they had uh, Vinyasa classes, but they were all Ashtanga based. Gotcha. And their teachers were just like amazing teachers, like well schooled. You know, like they would give Dharma talks at the beginning of class, where I'd be like, "Oh my God, where did they study this? What is this?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so the Barbara was like, "Well, maybe you can start assisting us." And so I, I began this. I assisted them for like two years, and then I went to Mysore and I started teaching Vinyasa with them until I got authorized in Mysore in 2014. And then that's when when I I started their early program there, their early Mysore program there. Um, but it was just funny that I came in like, yeah, you know, ego, like I know everything there is to know about yoga and I'm going to teach it. And they were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just come right this way, put your mat down and we'll get yeah. to work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that was great too. You know, that, that I think the I'm really grateful to Kristen and Barbara for that, for, cause that was also like really nourishing, especially for my nervous system. Cause whenever you're an you know, you're dealing with an eating disorder, your nervous system is completely out of whack. And so that having like, and living in New York City, and just like, yeah, not eating, drinking coffee. And, you know, at the time, I had a crazy relationship. It's just like, they were such just their presence and having to sit next to them for, you know, like I was assisting maybe like three to four hours a day, just sitting next to them, like their, their energy is it was just incredibly grounding for my being. So not only was I, you know, the practice, I think the practice of Ashtanga yoga is, it's, um, it's very active, but there's a very, the breath is just so, the breath, the drishti, the, um, the counting is just so grounding. So there's a fire, but also there's a really big element of, of really going deep within um, when you're doing it, you know, applying all these tools that we've, we're given. Um, so there was just a lot of grounding happening and there was a lot of resistance to the grounding. I really, you know, I, I really still to this day, I kind of struggle with the kapha element right now. I'm like on this Ayurvedic journey with a mentor and I, she's trying to help me build kapha for the next stage of my life, which is like moving into motherhood. And I just still to the day, there is like a resistance to everything that is kind of like earth element and, you know, Mm -hmm. like water and just like keep your feet solidly on the ground. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But definitely Ashtanga has, has that, that the repetition, I mean, the repetition is just so soothing to the nervous system. Well, yeah, I think, I think having a a set routine that you come back to a set practice or there's no questioning, or in some cases you might even say it's like, there's no creativity to it does create a, a a rajasic effect. You know, it does, it helps you find your footing, but 
that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? To be grounded and to have a sense of stability around the inevitable changes and inevitable unpredictable aspects of your life gives you that foothold to be able to come from a place of confidence. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking back at, um, you know, just going back on, on the store on like my story, just, I think the, what you were saying before about like taking it out on my body, cause that was the only thing that I, that I knew. I think that, you know, my whole eating disorder stemmed out of, and I think a lot of people's Um, eating disorder stems out of like the fear of not knowing and the fear of like letting go of control and, and having to build like the fear of change. And so you, you're trying to build that as you move through life, you're trying to have a sense of like, I'm okay. I, I, this is what I know. And I know that I'm fine. If my, if I can hold my wrist between my index finger and my thumb, and if I can like feel the little bone in my shoulder, like there's all these little things that you these like, um, marks that you set for yourself that are marks of like, everything is okay. If I can feel this bone, everything is okay today. And so it's, yeah, it's grasping for of, consistency. Exactly. It's that grasping for something that I know th- that is, that is here and that I know, and that it was the same yesterday and it's the same today and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Ashtanga is very much that it's like, it gives you this stable press, the stable structure where you in a safe space where you're, you're asked to like, to show up for yourself. And first, you know, that showing up, maybe you show up because, it, you know, you want to make sure the teacher is, is, you know, you're showing the teacher respect. And then you begin to like build a relationship with the practice that it, you fall in love with it. And so you show up for the practice and then eventually the practice does its magic and you begin to realize that you're really showing up for yourself. And so I think that this, this structure that we're given is really what why ashtanga is so great in healing addictive patterns because Mm. you you're you no longer need to you know that you have something that's rigid structured and there for you and you then you put all of your of that energy in in that and then you don't have to be so structured and so rigid with yourself because you know that you you have that already somewhere in your life like you know that that's happening every morning at 6 a.m so the rest of the day can kind of you begin to feel a sense of like okay so now I have this time where I can kind of choose what I want to do and it's okay because tomorrow I'm going to come back to this space and I'm going to do this set of things and this is how I'm going to end up feeling mm-hmm. and so it, it creates this kind of sense of freedom which of course then you have to build enough, kind of strength and courage and, and kind of uh, also wisdom to know what to do with that freedom um, and how, how to build in the other parts. And that's the other great thing about, you know, Ashtanga yoga is not just asana. It's the eight ashta eight anga limbs of yoga. So it's asana is the way that we, it's, you know, we have this physical body. And so we have to learn to deal with that first. Um, but then the beauty of the practice is that it just, naturally makes you because you're watching your mind because it's the same movement you begin to see how like things that you do like your diet your interactions your your the energy that you put in your thoughts everything affects your practice and so you be you be you naturally begin to become curious and so it's like this beautiful practice of swadhyaya of like observing and studying yourself and 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 becoming curious if you have you happen to have a good teacher that can then guide you into like oh you should you should look into this and read this then you you have 
you have this beautiful structure that you're kind of guided through in all the limbs of your life. Um, so I, I, I'm really grateful for that in, um, in yoga. And I think also like keeping in mind that another big thing that was huge for me in my recovery was that the idea of like, um, those first three sutras of like, in the first one, especially like Hatha Yoga Anushasanam, like the practice of yoga is now. And I love that because it's like, if, if, you know, if yoga is just the way you lead life or that sense of like communion within yourself, it's like, I can begin now. And like now can be like any time, you know? And so if I'm trying to do something, just like you might try to learn to catch your heels in Kapotasana, like you do it over and over and over again, but you can, no matter how many times you fail or you get scared, like now is the time to begin again. So there's such compassion in, in that, in that, in that lesson, in that, in that phrase, in that offering of teachings. Um, and so I think just sitting with all these principles makes you more of like a compassionate and, and soft and uh, person less judgmental. And I, and that's, that's, a, that was also like a big part of, of, of my recovery. And then of course, like from that into like, you know, if I go back to like the, I love this first three sutras and I think they've been like a big part of, of how I've come out of this eating disorder. So it's like that, that now is the time. And then the yoga, which is like learning about the content of your mind through your practice and then being in charge of stopping those thoughts, being like, I know this thought and it's only going to lead me to put my energy in a direction that is not constructive, that is not going to help me do my duty today, whatever that may be. And so I'm choosing to not grasp onto that, to not identify with that. And so that process together with like now, okay, so I lost that thought, I continued through, but I can start again now because there's going to be another thought. And so I always tell people that, come to me with questions about eating disorders I'm like you know it's it's about like learning doing this practice learning about the content of your mind and then catching yourself over and over and over again and and learning to stop and begin again and and be compassionate know that it's it's a process right it's just like practice is a process you don't just learn it all at once you you slowly evolve in it and you and you fail and you have successes and you you know you struggle and you don't it's it's all part of one and so it's that idea of not being so attached to everything that you're feeling um so that then that third that third sutra of like of like creating the space between the seer and the scene. So not everything that you're experiencing or, or feeling or thinking, uh, it's, you realize that you're, you're not that, you know, that you're, you, you can live separate of that. You can, you can choose to just let it exist as an entity of its own and you remain here. And in that here, you, you, you practice like starting now. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I've, kind of move through it the more the more I'm aware I've become of like my patterns mm -hmm. and the more I like study these concepts the more it's like oh this is what I'm doing I'm building compassion and I'm just continuously catching myself and giving myself the opportunity to like start over now <laughs> yeah I mean I think you crystallized the essence of the yoga sutras and applied it in a way that's pertinent and relevant to anyone facing any sort of addiction um 
And I think what you said about Ashtanga in particular, um, you know, mm-hmm. the structure and the consistency fulfilling that need of the addictive personality is, is right on point. That makes total sense. Something that you spoke on at the very beginning of our conversation that I'd like mm-hmm. to bring back up um, is the idea of devotion. You know, a lot of, you hear mm-hmm. a lot of recovering addicts talk about the role that devotion plays in their recovery. It's a big part of the 12-step program. So h- how has that played a role in your recovery? And also, just a quick question, you know, a lot of um, substance abuse addicts will say that they're mm-hmm. recovering addicts for the rest of their life. Do you, do you consider yourself to be a recovering anorexic or is this something that's in your past? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, let me see if I can remember both questions. I'm going to start with your second question. Yeah, that's the shorter um, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I also had like substance abuse issues in the midst of all of that. Um, so definitely, I think it's a it's a journey that never ends um, because you know, just like I mentioned at the beginning, like there's all these different phases. There's like these phases of life that we go through, um, and I think at any phase there's changes that happen that you have to adapt to. And if you're, you know, if you drop your guard or if you lose track of where you are on the path, it's very easy to slip back into old patterns. And I think that's why actually that brings me into like, um, so yes, I think forever the anorexic, I've kind of identified the anorexic me. It's like a a little persona inside of me and she'll always be there. And I'm here to let her know that everything's going to be okay. And I'm going to take care of her. Like no matter what she wants, like it's okay. We're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I have to have, you know, conversations with her every now and then. And, you know, I've, I, my partner is aware of, um, of my past history. So anytime I feel like disoriented or I feel like, you know, with, as a traveling, I travel a little bit, not too much, but I travel a bit to teach and, you know, traveling is often hard because you, you're letting go of your regular routines and trying to make new ones for where you are and adapting to climate and the food. And you can't always prepare food yourself. Um, so it's, it's, it's reminding yourself to, to be adaptable and to, to embrace change and to, so it's almost like that it's always present. Like that opportunity to fall back into fear is always present. So it's, that's why practice, you know, asana meditation, um, the yamas and niyamas, like all these practices are just so important to, to, to me, you know, like I, I, I have to have a regular practice of some sort, um, every day. Um, it comes right back to that point about the consistency and, and the routine. It's, it's very similar. You traveling to go teach is kind of like a microcosm or like a smaller scale version of you being, um, moved around by your family as a child, you know, being the stem of all of that trauma. And actually I'll go back to your initial question, but, um, about devotion but it's funny because I was just at, uh, <clears throat> teaching at Wanderlust in Whistler and on the way back my my partner was playing music for my class and he left early and I came um, I, I was traveling alone and they ended up it took me three days to get home because they kept canceling flights and the second day that they canceled my flight they didn't offer any accommodation or food And I remember very clearly, like being at the airport, I lost my shit. I started crying. And this guy, I was talking to this guy on the phone to try to book a flight. He finally books me a flight. Um, 
And then all of a sudden a new flight comes up and he's like, oh, I could try to book you on a before flight. And I was like, sure. He's like, I was like, but please don't make any decision until you run it by me. And he's like, okay, I'm going to put you on hold. He comes back and he's like, oh, so I moved you to the other flight. And I just, I got so upset because I knew that that other flight was probably not going to happen, even though it was supposed to be before, because the weather hadn't changed. I just lost, I just, that sense of like shattering and like fragmentation and separation all happened at once. I was like, I tapped straight back into my old self and I was like, I am going to kill you through the ether. And I was just so upset. And I, and then I had a moment of like, okay, I can choose to go with this and continue to fall down into the spiral of like negative behaviors to myself and others. Or I can just see it as like, okay, I have this opportunity to pause my travel, find a hotel, do yoga in the morning and then travel again. And it's okay. Like this is the process of life. We're constantly being like, it's, it's not an interruption to life, but it's like, it's just It's just life. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't always happen the way you want it to be. And it's a, and the practice is about, can I be here now? And can I be with what is instead of my idea of what it should be? And I think that's, that's also the, the, the addictive mind, right? Like it's, it's scary when things don't go your way. So yes, I always have to practice and I always have to remember, um, not, not always have to practice. Like I've, the other thing I've had to work on is to not, there was a moment in time where I was addicted to the practice and like I, I got really injured at one point when I finished third and I, there was, I realized then that there was so much identification going on of how, like, I was like, Oh, I practiced third series. This is who I am. Yeah, I'm a third and series injury, practitioner. Yeah. And that injury was like, boom, no, you're not. You're beyond that. You are like, that is just something that you are doing at the moment that's helping you, but you are not that. So it's like, there's so many opportunities to, 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 to continuously like be reminded that at no point in time, are we something other than that deep inner self that is the same within all of us. Everything else is just bullshit. That's momentarily bullshit. And we can, you know, it's beautiful bullshit sometimes, but it's not, it's, it's not real. And so, and yet we can't get angry at the bullshit. We have to remain soft and receptive and compassionate toward it. Yes. Yes. Which is a whole practice in itself. (laughs) Um, but I think that in all of this, I think what remains the same, and this is to answer your first question, the first part of the question, what remains the same through all these ups and downs and all the phases and all the things that life throws at you is the devotion piece, right? Because if you're just doing the practice without any kind of heartfelt love or connection to it, it's, there's no way you're going to show up to it every day. And I think that for me, the first time I ever felt like the devotional piece it's 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 moved and changed I don't know if you have a similar experience of it but it's kind of moved and changed throughout the years and I feel now more than ever um it's it's like it's God not in like a religious sense but it's like I live upstate and I'm so blessed to be able to have trees and like flowers and silence and it's like that's that's God. And that's like, that's the divine. And that's what I aspire to, to connect to. Like, that's what I aspire to, to 
be like, you know, and I think that practice is a form of prayer that we do with our bodies to, to shed everything that, that stops us from seeing that we are that too, and that we need to, we need to really take care of it. Um, the body, the earth, the, you know, others, everything, you know, and, um, so, so I think devotion is such a, there's a beautiful sutra, um, it's, I think it's the 14th sutra or the 13th, uh, in the first book. And it's like practices done with devotion for a long time, over a long period of time with devotion, dead and dedication. And I love that. Like, I remember that was one of the first sutras I ever memorized. I think it was on my second trip to India. I was like, wow, I love this. This is, this is what I want to do. I want to practice for a really long time with all my dedication and all my devotion. And of course, not every day I'm there, like feeling God and feeling, you know, every day is a little different. There's days where I'm like, Oh fuck, I got to like practice. But, um, but it's, it's that act of like, I'm showing up and, and the devotion is there in the showing up. Uh, and the lighting the candle, whatever, you know, like in showing love to, to what's given me so much. Yeah. Um, that does resonate with me. Uh, what you said about finding God, finding the divine in, in your practice in yourself in the, in the essence of yourself that's underneath all of the, the bullshit. And also what you said about mm-hmm. being upstate, you know, I think it's much easier for us to connect to the divine when we're in a context of simplicity. I think that's part of the beauty of yoga practice. Um, You know, it may from the outside look like complex movements, but anyone who's practiced for a long time understands that the more you get into it, the simpler it actually really becomes. And I would, I would love to hear more about your move. You know, you, you were in New York city for a long time. Was it an uh, explicit recognition of the divine in nature that took you out there or something else? Uh, well, I, I, w- I lived in the city for, I say I've been up here two years. I lived in the city for 11 years. And I, when I moved there, I was like, I'm not staying here. I'm just here momentarily. And then one thing led to the other. And I think this is true for anyone that's moved to New York from somewhere else. Like you just 10 years go by and you're like, fuck, still here for 10 years that that makes you a new yorker right i think that's official i think so i think so i have a green card and all now so um but new york green card new york York is not its own one (laughs) um i wish that was so especially in these days i'd I'd be more proud to have a new york green card than an american green card (laughs) but um yeah i you know i was i really started to miss I really started, it started to really wear down on me, my schedule. I was teaching full time. It was the fifth year in doing uh, the early Meister program at the Shala, which was 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. So I was waking up at like 4.45, doing the commute. It was just, and then running around the whole day because, you know, to afford rent, I was living in Williamsburg and then Greenpoint, but to afford rent, you, you have to work really hard in New York City. And it just stopped being aligned with what I wanted out of life. Like I was like, okay, I have all these great clients. I have all these great opportunities. I have a, you know, I was studying with Eddie at the time and there were just so many great things happening and coming at me. And I had a, you know, the program was really successful, but I just, I just didn't, I felt really dead inside. Like I would be on the subway and I'd be like, wow, like 
all these people, because my subway ride was mostly with like construction workers and, you know, people that are working so hard, not that everybody's working so hard, but these are like tired people. And I was like, I don't want, I don't want to live this way. I want to, I want to honor my rhythms and I want to like, I want to feel what it's like to, to have nothing to do for like a few hours. And I want to like, I really, yeah, what, what is that? I've it's, never heard of that in New York. Pretty scary. Talk about addiction. <laughs> like I'll talk about like sh- shit that comes up in your brain when there's silence and nothing to do. Um, but it was just, yeah. And I really craved um, putting my hands in soil, which I later found out is not as romantic as you might envision. It's actually pretty hard. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I really felt this deep, like it was like a longing. And I'd never lived in the mountains. I've always been a beach girl. So it was very new to me. But my boyfriend is from Vermont and he loves the mountains. And we he really wanted to buy property. And we found this place called Newburgh, which is right across from Beacon, about an hour and a half straight up the Hudson. And, um, they were, it's this city where it's like, it's a bunch of abandoned buildings. And we were like, wow. I mean, I, I still to this day have this vision of like building a community that all lives close to each other. And like, you know, everything is like morally aligned, the cafes, the way they work, like everything, the library, you share your children, you make food for each other. Like that's, that's my end goal dream but I was like oh we were both like wow this is like a great opportunity to bring people up no one's moved up here yet that we know of but we bought a little property and you know we did all the work ourselves I would never do it again my body was destroyed by it Um, but I now have a little shower in my garage and it's great I have a small community of people probably like seven students that come and you know it's um, repetition or like um, routine is really hard to to build up here in terms of yoga uh, because everyone has a family and you have to travel and like it's it's a whole other game Uh, but it's really nice to to begin again like to to start people from zero and to really um, you know I'm I love uh, the work of Krishnamacharya like I would say if there is a guru for me even though uh, he's not alive and I've never met him. I, I love Krishnamacharya. I love the way he describes or people have described the way that he worked. And I, I just love everything about the way he worked with yoga. And and so I, w- I really, the space that I have is really a place for for people to come. And, and you know, if they have a practice, I slowly work with them to to unlearn it and relearn a new way of moving and it's really nice to be able to not be as rigid with the ashtanga piece but to be really embracing of like okay you're walking in here with you know a whole life behind you and things that i don't know about you how can i best help you to you know for your for this yoga to help you in your life to do your duty and so it's been really nice to to have the space and time to really get to know each student and like you know i'm still teaching the series of Ashtanga, uh, but it's a different approach. And it's, it's not, I'm not as rigid about like, you know, at the beginning when I started teaching, it was like, you must bind, you must do this, you must do that. And now it's just like, it's really more about like, where are you at in your life? What, you know, what's your, what's your, uh, what are your priorities? And how can we best make this yoga work for you? Mm -hmm. It's like, why are you here? Like, what are you trying to get out of this? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I, and of course there's an element of like, there has to be a, 
you know, a certain discipline and yeah, I keep the order of course, but you know, if there's a mother and she only has 45 minutes and she's been doing primary series for six years, I, I, you know, I work around that and I maybe split the practice and I put in some second series backbends and like, just try, you know, I, I think it's important to get all kind of, um, movements in your, in your body after a certain time, a certain amount of time. And so it's, it's just really nice to have a space where, where there's space for exploration, you know, um, it's really, really great. My, um, you know, I don't know too much about Krishnamacharya, but what I have learned or read is that he's kind of known as being like the father of personalized yoga therapy in a sense. Is that what you mean by kind of like choosing the practice to meet certain people's needs? Yeah. So he, he was, he would, uh, he wouldn't teach uh, big groups of people. He would have like one student at the time in the small space. And, you know, I think later on in his life, he, he would have more students just because, uh, you know, the Maharaji had him teach at the college. And, but his main thing was that because he was such a big Ayurvedic Ayurveda student, um, he, he would like the student would come in and he would assess the student and see like, ask him questions and really get to know the person and then give him postures that would help that person alleviate any symptoms. So yeah, it was a very like, like a doctor. And yeah, I a more medicinal that. approach. Yeah, I love that. Because then you can be like as nerdy as you want about like your studies. And it's just, it just keeps your teacher brain so alive to, to, to be able to do that with students, you know, to continuously like try to learn more about how to help someone. Yeah, you're not just like a tape player saying the same yeah, thing over and over again. It's like, how exactly. can I help you? Yeah, and you know, within the within the Ashtanga practice, there's such like it's really unfortunate that people see it as like this rigid thing, which it can be, and it's important. You know, there's a phase of it that's really important for it to be that way, but there's all types of people, you know, and and there's so much space and room for for adaptation within the structure of it. And I've been really blessed, you know, to see, you know, Eddie and my teachers, you know, to see Sharat when I've assisted him over the years, uh, both with the Westerners and with Indian students, just how he would teach differently depending on what the student was. And, you know, in Mysore, when the Westerners are practicing, he does keep a very strict kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? What's the word? Um, Traditional primary series, second series, whatever, because he has 300 people in there. And of course he has to, for the lineage to continue to survive, there has to be someone that keeps it as it is. But yeah, I there's got to be a baseline established. So yeah, exactly. From and, you which know, I, to diverge. Exactly. And, and, and when I say divert, it's not that you're going to all of a sudden make up your own sequence, but you know, and then there are people that do that and that are genius at it, but that, that's not my journey, but at least not until now, but um, within those range of movements, there's so much breakdown that you can do in each asana. Um, that's really about understanding what each movement is, what each asana is getting at and how can you dissect that, you know, to best help this person get the benefit of that, you know? Um, so it's, it's really, it's the more I practice it, the more I'm just like wowed by it. You know, though now that I'm not, I, I can't practice at the moment third series, there's so much of third series that I observe in primary series or even in just standing series. I'm like, Oh, this is where it's at. Like you don't need to go that extreme way to, to feel this or to get the benefit of this. I mean, of course, third series has its 
benefits that are different, but, yeah. but no, I know what you mean. Yeah. The challenge is, is there in many yeah. different ways, you know? That's kind of what I was getting at before when I was saying like, when you practice a long time, your practice can become very simple. Yes. Yeah. So how do, um, how do I, how do the Dharma talk listeners come and, and practice with you in Hudson Valley? So I actually have a retreat coming up. It's the first, um, it's not like, yeah, it's a four day retreat and it's the first thing I do up here. It's going to be four days, um, of practice delicious vegan food prepared by a friend of mine who's used to have a restaurant in Bali and is now over here. Um, and, uh, and then I'm very blessed to have my Ayurvedic mentor, Maria Rubinate. She's an old time Guruji student has been practicing for over 25 years. Uh, she's going to be teaching the Ayurveda piece and, um, I don't have space to accommodate people, but there's on my website, um, slash fall retreat. There's suggestions of where people can stay around here. It's just beautiful vineyards and orchards and there's, plenty of airbnbs and and hotels or uh like small boutique hotels where people can stay at yeah um, hudson valley's full of those oh my god it's beautiful and so it'll be just four days of practice eating hiking and learning about ayurveda so that's kind of the, the best way and i'm here mondays wednesdays and fridays so if ever i'm, I'm we're working on a guest room so if ever there's people that want to come and, you know, spend the weekend or spend a few days to practice, there, there will soon be the option of being able to stay up here. I've had students already coming from Guatemala, and I had one coming from Oregon, uh, one from Italy. Um, and it's it's been really, really great uh, to, to see that because it's, I mean, Newburgh, it's a, at its beginning phases, and so is our house. So it's been it's been really humbling to to have people come visit, even though it's still like, yeah, I'm quite embarrassed still of, of its looks. <laughs> I'm sure that having more people come through will just uh, help you bring in that, that culture, that community that you need to make it come alive. So I think you're doing yeah. the right thing to just get out there with it. Yeah, I, I, the vision is there. The dream is there. It's slowly, slowly. Um, but yeah, that's the best way to come come out and, and see me here. And I also teach, uh, I'm teaching a retreat in Puerto Rico in uh, the end of January, January 25th. Um, and that's a five-day retreat where we are staying at a small boutique hotel and there's only room for nine to 12 students. And at the moment, I have two rooms left for that. And that's going to be practice in the morning, uh, beach time. Every day there'll be like a different excursion. And then in the afternoon, there's uh, philosophy uh, and pranayama. Uh-huh. So that's the other thing that's coming up. So two good options. If you are more interested in the vegan food, the Ayurvedic food, then come up in the fall. And if you want to learn philosophy, then head down to Puerto Rico with Bibi yeah. in January. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Bibi. Yeah. Apart from getting your message out on this podcast, what are you doing today to live your Dharma? Well, today I'm actually going to take a nice walk on the river after this because part of my current dharma is to prepare for pregnancy and to slow everything down. So I'm trying very hard to do that. It's very hard. It's harder than any other kind of practice to just 
leave your calendar, leave your to-do list and like make a pause in time where you're actually not doing something, but you're just taking in the beauty of what surrounds you. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm doing next. Hence the Ayurvedic mentorship and the focus on kapha activities and foods, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now is the perfect time to move on to the final section of the interview. This okay. is called the Prana Round. I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. 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 All right. Here we go. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Mm. Communion. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Oh, this is one of the hard ones. Um, I guess Kapotasana has always been my favorite. And why? Oh, it just brings up so much shit all the time. It just brings up so much emotion and it's so cleansing to the nervous system and emotional whatever sheath and yeah it's just a great challenge yeah that's a great pose it just feels so good to backbend so deeply i like b more than a yes definitely (laughs) agreed (laughs) what and i like to see how it changes like it used to be really easy and then it's not easy and it becomes easy again it's just like it's never the same yeah what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a yoga teacher When I turned 30, I was in India and I had just divorced and I was really tired and Sharat always has me catch like over my, like on top of my knees and he came up and I was like, I'm tired. And he like did the thing and I was like, we did it. We completed it. I sat down for (laughs) for, for bending. I survived and I, yeah. And I looked up and I said, I'm 30. I'm, I'm old. And he looks at me and he goes, your mind is old. And that's great because it's so true. Like the way that we direct our thoughts and like the things that we, you know, create in in our brains just define the way that we feel. And you can totally feel like you're a two-year-old if you want to. Or you can feel like a nine-year-old if you want to. It's yeah. all about how you think. <laughs> you choose. Yeah, all exactly. Right. So, yeah. Recommend Favorite one book, books. modern or ancient, for our audience. Only one. Just one. Okay. Oh, um, I guess uh, it would have to be the Bhagavad Gita. I'll let you have one more. Okay. Because I know that you're. Uh, str- I know that you had a tough time choosing. Yeah, so Health, Healing, and Beyond by Krishnamacharya is great. Um, okay, nice. I mean, it's it's written by Desikachar, um, but it's, yeah, it's the, his teachings, his living teachings. Okay. Um, and it's, yeah, it's great. And then Eddie's One Simple Thing, I have to slide that in there because that's also a great book. Yes, great book. Highly recommended. Yeah. Okay, is yoga for everyone? Yeah, I think, you know, I I would say yes. Um, Yeah, it is, but you have to be willing to put the effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? All right, well, um, you can email me at info at bblorenzetti.com 
um, or through directly through my website, bblorenzetti.com. There's like a contact page. Um, I do Instagram. I'm not as active right now on it, but I'm, I'm trying to keep up. Uh, again, that's at bb.lorenzetti. So you can message me through there, but definitely the best way is email. Okay. Yeah. Instagram is not kafa. Yes, it's not. And unfortunately, I'm, this is another thing I'm working on, not being on Instagram. And it is so hard. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, the addiction that we build to knowing what other people are up to. And like, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I'm with that. I feel you on that big time. Yeah. And it's part of our job too, I feel like. Yeah, to, that's the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. real struggle. Yep. It's, like so, yep. it's like so counter to the practice and yet critical to the business side of being a yoga teacher, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, that's a topic for a whole other podcast. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll table it for now. And I'll just say, BB, thank you so much for coming on. It was, it was great to connect with you. And I hope that we can take this connection into real life sometime soon. Yeah, I would love that. It's been such a pleasure. I really want to see you face to face. Thank you so much for having me on here. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.